Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Recall This Book, where I'm here, back in the studio, with my illustrious colleague and co-host, John Plotz. Hello, John. Hey, Elizabeth. And me, Elizabeth Ferry. And our guest today is another illustrious colleague, Janet McIntosh. Hello, Janet. Hi. Janet is a sociocultural and linguistic anthropologist. She's currently writing a book about language in the U.S. military. And along with these projects, with this project, she's been using tools of linguistic anthropology to examine the language of the right wing, particularly in the United States. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, So, Janet, um, as is our want, maybe you could get us started and just tell us a little about your recent work and uh, how that, how you're looking at language use in the U.S. fits into it. Sure. Um, thank you so much for having me. So, yes, um, my history is as a sociocultural and linguistic anthropologist. I used to work in sub-Saharan Africa and switched over in recent years to looking at how language militarizes service people. And, um, and then I was sort of diverted along the way by the Trump administration and all the fascinating <laughs> linguistic dynamics that were going on there. So with my colleague, Norma Mendoza-Denton, who's at UCLA, we co-authored a book of essays called Language in the Trump Era. And, um, you, you know, once you start to pay attention to this stuff, it keeps grabbing at you no matter how hard you try to quit it. <laughs> right wing, I just can't quit you. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, would you say that you were kind of attuned to these questions because of what you were? I mean, we've all been attuned to them. This is something that's very, mm-hmm. you know, part of the reason why your your book, for instance, Language in the Trump Era, has been uh you know, a lot of people have been excited about it, mm-hmm. is that it's something that people have noticed. Yeah. But would you say that your work... That it's made me attuned? I think yeah. so, because I think that, um, you know, the, the, the paternal disciplinarian um, that you, you get in a lot of Trump's language and a lot of the right-wing language that's mm-hmm. trying to school the left into being harder and tougher and less pathetic and sensitive and snowflakey, <laughs> yeah. um, there really is some, as we, we call it, interdiscursivity with certain elements of military language. Right, right, so right. I think I was kind of attuned to elements of that. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And also, and, and this can maybe lead us to some concrete examples, um, the ways in which sort of the inside and outside are defined, right? Who gets to be in a group that's in on a secret or outside, um, Absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, the, the the Marine Corps is the ultimate in-group, for instance. And one of the things that's been so affectively powerful about alt-right language, the world of memes and so forth, um, and QAnon has been that it's it's supremely good at making people feel empowered because they're part of an exclusive in-group right. um, that has, and here's where we go away from the military, that has access to um, say, in the case of QAnon's, you know, secret knowledge, right, um, right, right, and is empowered and emboldened by this this vague idea of an alternative state waiting in the wings and so forth. But it's knowing the right language that gets you access, yeah, to that yeah. possibility and that has, power. 
I mean, so one of the examples we want to talk about is the Let's Go Brandon example. Right? Absolutely. So, so maybe start us out and give us a little bit of the background. I'm sure many listeners sure. are aware of it. but Yeah, right. So I'll, I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll skip some things, but there's probably a lot of background knowledge. Okay, so that is a, a right-wing uh, slogan that got going in the fall of 2021. There was a... a a race, a Talladega race uh, track, and a, a driver named Brandon Brown had won. And while he was being interviewed on live TV, there was a raucous crowd in the stands who were like ripping off their shirts and pumping their fists and chanting, fuck Joe Biden, like that, which was yeah. an ongoing, had been an ongoing chant at uh, at some sports games. <laughs> um, and for whatever reason, the, the news broadcaster said, oh, listen, they're chanting, uh, let's go, Brandon. And, I, and uh-huh. it's not clear whether that was a conscious or an unconscious re-layering of the right, meaning. Right. At any rate, this was taken up with great hilarity uh, uh-huh. by folks on the right. Yeah. Let's go, Brandon became that slogan. And there's this kind of super thin veneer, this obvious pretense of uh, uh, of um, of not swearing, but actually underneath it all, cursing mm-hmm. out Joe Biden and meaning to say, fuck Joe Biden. Right, right. So it, it's got tons of appeal. Um, I mean, there are lots of, of things going on here, right? One thing I was thinking about just before coming here is that um, there's always this this wink, like, oh, we're in cahoots with, with each other, with one another as a, right. as a group of, of anti-Biden folks, because we know uh, what it really what it really means. We really mean fuck Joe Biden. But that winking thing it's like we're in cahoots. And I remember I cast my mind back to 2008 when Sarah Palin was debating Joe Biden in the VP presidential mm-hmm. debates. And she infamously winked multiple times mm-hmm. at the camera. And it was her effort right. to do this whole to en- enlist her supporters in this. Little, you and I know what's really going on. Right, right, winky, right. winky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it might have flown with her followers. It was mocked by the left. But yeah. uh, but that sort of sense of, oh, there's a bit of a, a shared secret. Right. But then another layer that's going on here is that there's this whole language ideology backdrop among the right, where which your listeners will know very, very well, which is a kind of hos- a hostility to the idea that people should uh, be careful with their language, right? right? It's sort of the anti-PC ideology, the mockery of this idea that the details and nuances of language matter. and We have to not hurt or wound each other with language. Right. And I think that part of what Let's Go Brandon as a slogan does is it actually mocks the very idea that you'd have to mince words. Right. And you can see that in some of the – there are concrete examples of that. Like there was a T-shirt for sale that read – uh, let's go, Brandon. And then I'd like to solve the puzzle. And underneath that, there there's a right. graphic. It looks like it's from Wheel of Fortune, right. where it says "fuck Joe Biden," but they've de- they've deleted um, with opaque rectangles like the U in "fuck" and the the I in Biden. Right. And it's like it's right there, but yeah. they're kind of pretending. See, that's that's one dimension of it because it's like a veneer, but it's a veneer that nobody is supposed to not see through. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, it's very, it's so thin that it is, I agree with you, it is a kind of mocking yeah. gesture of like... Of the idea of veneers. Right, exactly. Like, like I'm going to say this, but I can't get in trouble. And, right. And there's a sort of media thing, like, I can't get in trouble saying it on TV. Exactly. Or on a, 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 a Christmas Eve phone call with Joe Biden, when one right. guy r- rang off going... Let's go, Brandon. And right. then afterwards, they're like, oh, it's just playful fun. So you right. get plausible deniability. Yeah, yeah. And you also, if you're an evangelical who doesn't want to cuss out loud, mm-hmm. you can put that yeah, sign yeah. in your window. And yeah. I've seen photos on the 
on, on a Facebook page of children wearing Let's Go Brandon sweatshirts. Right. There's right. a whole chain of stores in New England, by the way, that are now called Let's Go Brandon. Yes, and you, in your article, yeah. which we'll, if with your permission, post on our, yeah, on yeah, our yeah. site, you, you visited one such store, right? Yeah. 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 In a way, though, it's kind of like implausible deniability. You know? <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. It's like it's not like anyone really believes that that they're not saying that. <laughs> That's yeah. so true. That's yeah. so true. Um, yeah, but it is it is fun. You know. Meanwhile, it gets paired with uh, symbolism that is it has been increasingly dark and violent. It's being printed on guns. It's being um, you know it was hung over an overpass. Let's go, Brandon, next to a swastika on a big banner. Mm-hmm. It's printed on these um, so-called freedom frag bottle openers that are shaped like grenades. And so wow. it's getting, and that's we call that in semiotics regimentation, where you keep putting one sign in yeah. proximity to other signs, and there's a kind of um, a, a rubbing off of of yeah. meaning. And so it gives Let's Go, Brandon, a bit of a sinister. It can be fun, but it can also be sinister. And right. that pairing of of levity with sinister intimations is also something that Pepe the Frog memes were great at as yeah. well. It's something yeah. the alt-right is very good at. Yeah. It's great at um, enlisting people effectively. I really like your unpacking of that, Janet, that the, 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 the fragging isn't just asserting the kind of um, – I don't know, uh, violence of the right as belonging to some sort of authoritarian impulse that is deep in our country. It's also the notion of rebellion. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that tension, the idea that it's at once, um, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, the well-disciplined right and the undisciplined right, like how does that doubleness... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I guess this is an impossible question to answer about semi about how the semiology of these signs works, but it's about w- whether it's really activating two contradictory things at once mm. and holding them together, or whether it's mm. just gesturing at the one but really adhering mm. to the other. I don't know, but you just made me think about um, one thing I'm writing about when it comes to military signage during boot camp, which is that there is there are totally contradictory messages about the idea that this is a structure that's incredibly rule-bound and then there are perpetual violations of those rules and um, Mm -hmm. mocking of those rules and that uh, it's, why, it's how the Top Gun mil- movies are built, right? right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. We're here to be the best. We're the instrument of the U.S. government, and we're breaking every and rule. And we're breaking all the rules. Right. We're here to enforce the rules because right. the rules are important. Yeah. They have to be obeyed, and therefore right. we get to break them all. Yeah. And we're going frame. rogue. So, I mean, so yeah. I mean, I've, I'm rogue, reading right. it now because of the way, because of what I'm working on as a sort of vaguely. It smells a little bit like the way that military power likes to work in the USA. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's what it's reminding yeah. me of. It it also, I mean, it seems like a reference to the Civil War too, right? The rebel, they were the rebels, and that, yeah. that was the right, right. So by kind of enrolling that stance or that position, right. right. But you're also talking you're bringing to people, that history with you to some extent. Yeah, totally. But you're yeah. also talking to people who don't have a shared code book. Like it's not as mm-hmm. if like the nudge nudge wink wink mm. itself has to be. 
it ha like it has to carry with it its own instructions for being deciphered because it's not as if people know it already. Mm -hmm. That's kind of why I was asking you about <clears throat> militarized language because I totally take the point that anytime you enter any kind of institution, you're given sort of the jargon to activate you, you mm -hmm, know, so right. that we know if something's problematic, we know what that means, you know, <laughs> like, we, because, you know, we're professors on a campus, so it's, if you're told something's problematic, you know what to read it as. <laughs> but this is different because it's meant to recruit a lot of people, like, unlike the military, which is only, whatever it is, right. a million people, this is reaching 250 million mm -hmm. people. Uh -huh. <clears throat> That's and it a doesn't good point. have that institutional framework. Yeah, exactly. Well, right. I mean, recruiting tools that keep things kind of baggy like that yeah. can get more people. Right. Right. <laughs> because yeah. every people can infill with the fantasy of their choosing. That's one of the, the geniuses of QAnon, actually, yeah. when it comes to the, the conspiratorial stuff that people are reading in. Yeah. They can fill in the fantasies that they're most invested in. Um, maybe this is a moment to turn to to QAnon, which you've also, and Q drops, which you've also written about, which seem to be a different, you, a different kind of secrecy because it's much deeper and it's more invested in being hard to figure out. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So. So right. That. I mean, it also has a little bit of a little bit of de decoupling between what we call the signifier and the signified, but mm. it's a, it, it is deliberately much more cryptic. And that's part of the um, the appeal. Mm -hmm. Jenna, can you just say one more sentence on what you mean by the decoupling of the signifier and the signified? Uh, sure. Well, I think um, it's it, it's common for for folks to imagine that linguistic meaning is more or less transparent, right? That we have sort yeah. of dictionaries in our head and right. hear I mean, a word, look up the definition. Language sort of works on the the fact that we assume that to be true. We, right. right, and that it's, um, it's, it's neatly intelligible. Right. Um, in fact, ordinary language has all kinds of slippage and messiness between the surface form and what's actually meant, and people will give classic examples or things like if I say, if I look at the window and I say, oh, it's, it's getting cold in here, I might really mean get up and close the window. So there's all kinds of ways mm -hmm. that on, on the daily we're not being 100% transparent when it comes to uh, the relationship between the surface form of, of our signs, sure. our signifiers, and what we actually mean. Um, but I do think that, especially with, with QAnon and then also with Let's Go Brandon, um, there's there's a, a more deliberate uh, and obvious kind of sense that, okay, what you see on the surface isn't exactly what's meant. There's something more to be done. Right, and there are different right. reasons for that, like you were saying, Elizabeth, with Let's Go Brandon, it's the implausible deniability. <laughs> uh -huh. um, everyone wants the, the, the meaning to be known, even though right. they're not saying it directly. But with QAnon, you know, that, was, that movement um, has been very empowering in a different way because, uh, because there's a real decoupling uh, between the sign forms themselves in the Q drops that mm -hmm. Q started to put on 4chan and 4kun and 8kun back in 2017. There's a real discrepancy between those signs and any kind of clear meaning. Right. And in fact, you have to have an arsenal well, first of all, it's never entirely clear what what right. Q a, wanted to mean, um, but uh, but they're they're leaving all these little clues, cryptic, um, you know, aphorisms, numbers, letters, acronyms, and so forth, mm -hmm. and saying things like 
everything is connected and um, uh, and, uh, and look forward to look backward, these little cues about how you're meant to interpret them to right. dig for something so, deeper. So, Janet, can I ask a sort of historical uh, linguistic question? Isn't that always been true of prophecy, like going back to oh, Nostradamus yeah. or something? Oh, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, so in, in an article I wrote about it, I say it's a lot like divination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, my earlier work in, in Kenya, one thing I looked at was how diviners would use um, uh, you know, modes of, of language that were totally unintelligible to ordinary people, and you had to have special access to, like, the supernatural truths in order right, to decode right. them. Like the yeah. Delphic Oracle. Like glossolalia, speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm. You know, the tongues of men and angels are, are usually indecipherable to the ordinary human ear, but sometimes there are folks who claim to be able to interpret the tongues as they uh-huh. come because they have a more direct channel to right. the divine. Right. So it, it actually, that's part of how QAnon, I think, has gotten its power is, mm-hmm. is through this sort of vaguely divinatory language. A lot of what it says is quite prophetic, right? Yeah. Nothing mm-hmm. can stop what's coming. The storm is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, or weirdly, you're going to love how this movie ends. So in some <laughs> sense, it's the opposite of the implausible deniability part. The, yeah. the, the let's go Brandon, really good which point. is just one-to-one correspondence yeah. or something. But yeah. Yeah. this is meant to be Yeah, and it, it seems like it produces, and this is where there's kind of a creepy resemblance to, like, literary critique and stuff, right? It produces a community of people who are debating different interpretations, right? And sort That's of, right. And that, <laughs> I, like, has its own sure. kind of and you feel community po- And you building. feel powerful as the person who can see beneath the <laughs> yes. surface. Strong readers and weak yes. readers. Close readers. Yes, find the hegemony. <laughs> it's Originalists, probably. Foundationalists. Yeah, uh, indeed. Um, yeah, well, and with Q, with QAnon, of course, a lot of the people who became an adherents, you know, Anons, followers, um, code crackers, people who would bake the so-called breadcrumbs, or people who feel alienated from the so-called elite experts. So right. the experts in the university are exactly who they do not want to be looking to right, um, right, for, right. for the real truth. Right. They, want, they have direct access to it. And that's tremendously empowering yeah. for them. That was very – was and, and still is. And uh-huh. then that cryptic language, you know, having secrets is power. You yes. know, George Simmel wrote about this, right? Yes. Secrecy equals power, whether that's about holding a secret or um, cracking a secret. All of right. those are empowering. Right. So it was very, very empowering. Um, and it feels and it felt state like I think it felt has felt like there's this alt state waiting in the wings. Yes. Yes. That has this kind of looking glass quality to relationship to what are perceived as the institutions of power now. Look, by looking glass quality, you mean? Well, I don't know. Maybe this is pushing it. But but is there do you feel like there's any kind of degree of implicit like, okay, now we're going to use these tools of, you know, we're going to be the ones who know the the inner knowledge and can lord it over the rest of you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what I mean, like the, that it's sort of like a looking glass university discourse or something like that or a looking glass elite discourse. You disagree? Yeah. No, no, I agree. <laughs> I was just thinking of this Adorno essay from the 50s, The Stars Down to Earth, about why mm. people like um, astrology. Mm-hmm. And that astrology, it, it, specifically on that yeah. power question, it's actually not a political conspiratorial account. It's just an account of like wanting to know that there's some kind of esoteric order that is available to common people through newspaper 
astrological right. columns, which align you with the stars, which are so much more important than any earthly computer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Transcendently wow, important. Transcendently, yeah. Yeah, and that require esoteric tools and... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and meanwhile, um, everything that comes out of the mouth of, uh, you know, Democrats and university professors and scientists and so forth should be subject to skepticism. It's a Mm -hmm. whole epistemological orientation where one must read beneath the surface, whether it's for the dastardly realities of the left's um, cabal of, you know, pedophilic conspiracies Mm -hmm. or whether it's because Trump is trying to tell you something with the way he moved his hand in that meeting. Right. So, right. Jen, are you making a strong claim for the political affinity to the right? Like, is there an elective um, disposition towards right-wing politics with this? Or does it just happen to be the case that mm. QAnon itself is, which is manifestly a right-wing right. conspiracy thing? But, you know, uh, I think don't, examples, it's not that strong a claim. Yeah. I just think it's... Um, a really handy way of making people feel empowered and, and congealing them affectively around a community. But it's yeah. also effective, as we've been saying in the yeah. academy, too, yeah. to yeah. feel like you can read beneath the surface. Yeah. In fact, recurs idea of the hermeneutics of, of suspicion, suspicion. Totally. is that, you know, this notion that a la Marx, a la Freud, so much of what we see on the surface of society, we should be reading more deeply right, into right. for these patterns of these forces of capital yeah. and this subconscious and so forth. And then so zooming back out just for a little bit, you know, all of these kind of secrecy and, um, you know, delicate operations of veiling and unveiling exist also within a a politics of direct speech. And, you know, we tell it like it is and and what you've described as semiotic callousing, which I'd like you to Mm. unpack for our listeners. Sure. Yes, that is, and it it is it is really different, and in some ways, as you say, contradictory. Um, in some ways, um, to to the the delicacy with which, like QAnon, will construct a, a drop, and the interpreters will interpret it. Um, so this idea of semiotic callousing came up for me when I was um, looking at the way language is used during basic training in Paris Island, South Carolina, which is mm-hmm. one of two Marine Corps recruit training depots in the States. And it's in a Billy Joel song. Is it? No. Oh. It is. That's his, his, his sort of metonym for Vietnam is that they come from Paris Island. But oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, sorry. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and, and of course, everyone who's seen, you know, Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket is familiar yeah. with some of what goes on in Paris Island. It's yes. true. There's a lot of yelling. And it is true that recruits are still insulted, although... The rules of, um, you know, the recruit training order says you're not meant to demean and insult and disrespect mm-hmm. and so forth. And, of course, the drill instructors do that all the time. Yes. They're a little they, – they don't um, venture as, as often into things like racial slurs, but they're still all the gendered – trouble. Um, You know, I'm not sure how blue to get on this show, but, you know, pansies and homophobic stuff, little girls, cupcakes, and so so forth. So, um, and okay, so what's going on there? I mean, there's a lot. It's a rite of passage. People are being ground down, a la Victor Turner. But it's also, I think there's a teaching tool within the very use of insults that Mm -hmm. all your old 
sensitivities need to be dulled, um, whether that has to do with your personal vulnerability mm-hmm. um, or your empathic mercy for, say, the enemy. Because, you know, it's a, in some very, very loose fashion, the drill instructor is to the recruit as the Marine is to the enemy. Yeah. Because the Marine will turn around and then use dehumanizing slurs and insults right, and so right. forth against the people right. that they're but supposed to kill. But not pedagogically. Not pedagogically anymore. No. Right, right. Right. So this, so the 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 first kind of we the wave of semiotic callousing really really starts during during basic training, and mm-hmm. it is indeed pedagogic. Mm-hmm. So um, I mean, so it's and kind I, of a live fire drill. Like you're meant mm-hmm. to be able to put up with all these things, since there are things you up. might be able to, right, you right. might have to endure out in the world. And yeah. then civilians are different because they can't endure these things because they haven't been toughened. You are especially left wings, civilians, right. <laughs> <laughs> but and especially women, and especially gay people, and so forth, <laughs> yep. um, gay men. But um, yes, absolutely. It and and when you say it's like a live fire drill, I'm really riveted by the way that this mode of using language is talked about by. Marines and veterans and drill instructors in this kind of quasi-physical way. Like you're meant mm-hmm. to thicken your, you're meant to develop a thick skin. You're meant to let right. it roll off you. It's yeah. it's like as if the you're getting little verbal semiotic bullets. Yeah, and you're meant to yeah. harden yourself, and that's supposed to translate yeah. into or like napalm or something. I'm just, I guess, I'm asking about this notion of abusive language or the language that is like, you know, sort of declaring one's allegiance to. Um, you know, whatever, uh, a sort of Trump speech, I guess. How much you understand that as being abuse in order to put people in their place versus how much you're mm-hmm. connecting it to the sort mm, of oh. the, br- the drill sergeant model, which is more like toughening you up toughening so you can be you one mm-hmm. of us. Right. I know, right. Um, Pedagogic as opposed to abusive. Exactly, I exactly. Yeah. I don't know, this is but good I mean, for the conversation. But I mean, abusive is also pedagogic to some other potential listener, right? I mean, when they're calling, oh, you're when, you're, when you're yelling at someone and saying you're a, you're a liberal crybaby, mm-hmm. you're also signaling to the other people who you believe will agree with you or you hope will agree with you. That's right? a great point. And, and maybe you're getting, you know, no one wants to be called a, a wuss or a crybaby or yeah. infantilized or, whatever, or sometimes feminized. So maybe it gets swing people over to this right. empowering side of, yeah. of Trumpy um, and it, discourse. It's actually, I mean, it's. There is this funny way in which social media enables that kind of communication because often social media is or, you know, let's say a tweet, you know, has a has a presumed or performed direct object of you. I'm speaking to you, Queen Elizabeth or whatever. (laughs) Um, But in fact, the tweet is speaking to other people. That's right. Who agree. The intended right. audience is yeah. someone other than the, the, the supposed the target. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah, that's a yeah. good point. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. Yeah. Well, this may be our moment to, to begin turning towards home. And uh, as our listeners will know, we generally have a section called recallable books, which don't necessarily have to be literal books. Um, that, you know, this conversation may have uh, provoked in our minds and maybe in your minds so that, you know, if you want to go down any of these rabbit holes, here are some ideas. So um, perhaps I'll begin uh, 
with, and John will laugh at me. But, I will not. <laughs> although I I'll laugh gently with you. There have been very few times that I have suggested a Trollope novel <laughs> in this podcast as my recallable book, but this is going to be one of them. Um, it's not actually a terrifically good novel. It's called Marion Fay, one of the later Trollope. I've never read it. But it's, yeah, I'm not sure. Well, you know, go for it. But <laughs> but there's a part of it which one of the main characters, Marion Fay, the title character, is a Quaker who is who becomes a lord, falls in love with her. And uh, there's a passage in which and it and it has a very interesting father daughter relationship. They're often really um, kind of good father daughter relationships in Trollope novels. And and he speaks in what's called Quaker plain speech, which has a number of different features, but. Um, maybe the most uh, famous and kind of prominent feature is um, uh, referring to people as thee and thou, or thou and thee. Um, and um, he, the the passage in the novel says that, you know, her father kind of absolved her of doing this so that she would use you, which is, you know, was at the time the, you know, as in French or Spanish, was a plural form of the second person that was used as a form of respect in contrast to the singular form, which is thou and thee, which was used um, for children or persons of lower stature, right? So, and and Trollope says, and thus she was absolved from the slight tinge of hypocrisy of Quaker speech. And it really (laughs) reminded me of this sort of, uh, you know, complicated, somewhat unpredictable, but also highly wrought use of language as kind of enrolling different kinds of uh, politics, because, of course, Quaker plain speech was was intended as a leveling, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Nobody should be getting, um, you know, special, a special pronoun because they're we're all, you know, sinners and we're all equal in our relationship to God. Like in Spain in the Civil War, the, mm-hmm. the royalists use you. Right, exactly. Yeah. Two. Yeah. Two, yeah. Two right. Yeah. And it reminded me of an article by Michael Silverstein about that shift where this sort of interesting ha- thing happened because the Quakers started, you know, very pointedly using uh, thou and thee, kind of irking other people who rebelled against this and saw it as a kind of slightly, mm-hmm. um, you know, rogue or rebellious and maybe even, you know, um, hypocritical, as as Trollope seems to suggest. And so they kind of doubled down on you. And the argument is that that's sort of the shifting moment when, in fact, everybody started. It did, in fact, lose its kind of sense of of hierarchy, right? right. But instead of, as the Quakers had had hoped... Uh, becoming uh, calling everyone the and thou, you're now we call everyone you. So um, there's a article by Silverstein which we will put on the. Yeah, I want to read that article. I'm not sure I want to read that novel, but I definitely want to read that article. Yeah. Yes, I might even put the passage since it is in the public domain. Uh, John, do you cool. have a... I do. It's very short, and uh, I'm, I'm imagining some listeners may be thinking of it already, which is the Richard Hofstetter article from 1964, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, and it was a pleasure to go back and reread it. American politics has often been an arena for angry minds, And he goes on to say, I call this way of thinking in American politics the paranoid style simply because no other word adequately evokes the sense of heated exaggeration, (laughs) suspiciousness, and conspiratorial fantasy. 
And, um, you know, the reason I was asking your question about the innate right-wingness, Janet, was, like, to think about, you know, people like Hofstetter make the argument that there's something distinctive about American, mm. you know, radically democratic politics from the 19th century that, mm. that sparked this. I mean, going back to the, you mm. know, to the populists who always had sort of left and right-wing dimensions mm-hmm. but were often conspiracy thinkers. They often were afraid of the bankers. They were afraid of the international Jewish conspiracy. Mm. And yet they were also, you know, very left-wing in some of their right. politics. Politics. So just to think about what that, um, you know, the difference between openness, kind of in a way like a, a search for an open democratic politics that precisely depends on conspiracies about there being locked rooms elsewhere that that openness can't reach. And mm. so that Hofstadter article is 60 years old now, but mm. 70, but it seems That's 60. great. I would yeah. love to look at that. Yeah. Janet. Yeah, I wanted to share a book by a fellow anthropologist named Susan Lepselter. She published a book in 2016 titled The Resonance of Unseen Things, Poetics, Power, Captivity, and UFOs in the American Uncanny. Hmm. So she did incredible fieldwork in Nevada among um, UFO believers. This is a really poetic, sympathetic, beautifully written book. Um, She is interested in... I mean, this has to do with reading the signs in the world and and um, interpreting what what forces lie beneath them. Um, and the UFO believers do have something in common with QAnon followers in the sense that they're constantly connecting the dots, like you know, constellations in the night sky. They'll find a a figure mm-hmm. there. Um, mm-hmm. There's a word for that called apophenia, which is mm-hmm. where you where you draw connection. You find patterns in in random signs, mm-hmm. um, and um, and and one of the things that Lepselter argues is that um, all this perception of the uncanny signs of aliens among this community in Nevada. Uh, aliens who capture and trap people. It's kind of a big metaphor for the the, the malaise um, and mm-hmm. and hopelessness, um, uh, uh, the despondency of downward economic mobility. So mm. here we have, it's a twofer because we have the <laughs> UFO believers reading into the signs beneath them and finding aliens, right? And then mm-hmm. we have Lipselter <laughs> reading yeah. reading yeah. what the UFO That's believers right. are yes. saying about about UFOs and reading it's beneath, all the way down. I'm reading yeah. like a good ethnographer, yeah. a wonderful ethnographer, reading beneath them to the deeper meaning. And in this case, we can actually go back to Marx, right? It yeah. has to do with despondency about capitalism, yeah. late capitalism. Right. Yeah. But it's a wonderful, wonderful read. I highly recommend it. You remember that Saturday Night Live set of sketches about oh, alien abduction? <laughs> Are we reenacting? Yes. <laughs> I want to be. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, right. All right. All right. Um, well, uh, for the moment, nothing remains except to thank Janet so much for a great conversation and for, Pleasure. for coming to so talk much. with us. What a fantastic thing you have going now. And what, what number is this again? Uh, well, it's going to be in it's the somewhere 90, in the high 90s. High 90s, yeah. yes. Um, so listeners, you know, interpret this as you will. We're closing in on our 100th episode. <laughs> and uh, uh, as always, we really thank you for listening and uh, hope to hear back from you as well. Thanks a lot. Recall This Book was founded by John Plotz and me, Elizabeth Ferry. It is sponsored by Brandeis University and the Mandel Humanities Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen. Website design and social media by Miranda Peary of the English Department. We are eager to hear your comments, criticisms, and thoughts. If you liked what you heard, 
Please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at RTV, thanks for listening.